0: I had such a treat last week, not only with my daughter getting married, but to have one of my best friends be able to come and be a part of the service. And when John Ortberg spoke, we started this serious journey toward God and and really felt it would be important to begin with um, the pivotal person in all of history and all of life. And a number of times, John asked the question, who is this man? And he would describe something about the changes and, and what happened as a result of his life. And he said, who is this man? You have to ask that question, who's this man? And he would also then, at a certain point, say, do you know him? Do you know him? Let's pray. Father, I would ask that as we take these moments to reflect on what it means to truly know you, that you would open our hearts. And for every person here, I pray that as we stop, we would just allow for us and each person to really be... um, in these moments, quiet and our hearts soft and, and really willing to allow you to speak. Give us faith and each person your faith to hear you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever thought that God has been in your life, maybe at a time before you ever knew him in any personal way? Maybe you don't know him personally. You know about God. And in your past... He was unknown to you, but yet still very much present. You felt his hand or his, his guidance in some ways. Helen Keller, in her biography, The Story of My Life, writes that her first seven years of life was full of darkness. Obviously, she was blind, but in, in even more than just the blindness, her whole heart and her whole life and experience felt dark. She says, I was like a ship at at sea in a dense fog, tense and anxious, groping my way toward shore. Only I was without compass or sounding line, and had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul, and the light of love shone on me in that very hour. As she was calling out, she goes on to tell how Ann Mansfield Sullivan came to their home right around that time. And as a result of that, began to work with her. And after many attempts, Ann Sullivan, trying to help her connect the world outside to her inner world in her mind. She said, after many attempts at spelling words, finally, one day, she placed Helen Keller's hand under a water spout. Helen writes, As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled in the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R, she's spelling it out, meant the cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. Years later, as Ann Sullivan continued to work with her and attempted to explain to Helen God. She writes that Anne tapped out the symbols for the name God. And much to Anne's surprise, Helen says, she spelled back, Thank you for telling me God's name, teacher, for he has touched me many times before. Isn't that kind of interesting. Helen Keller knew something about God's signature from nature. She could actually feel it, she said, through the beauty of this earth, and she could actually experience some of the impulses of His Spirit guiding and leading her. But its source at that time was wordless, nameless, and unknown. But that day, the nameless, unknown God became personal known. God is all about wanting to be known. God is all about wanting to know you more intimately and wanting for you to know him. Paul goes to a city called Athens, where he speaks about this God who had no name, who to them was yet unknown. He enters this city, a city of great significance. In fact, one historian actually writes, this was one of the greatest cities of all ages, this is where the first real democracy arose. The city-state, which was called the polis, was run by people who elected officials who governed themselves. It's where we get the word metropolitan or polity, politics, or, or even think about mini-app polis. Polis was the concept of an urban center with political system that was self-governing. And Greece was a culture not only great in that sense as the rise of the city, state, and democracy, but it was a a great culture of literature and philosophy from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle. You see also magnificent architecture and art and athletics from the Parthenon to sculptural depictions of the human body to the Olympics. All these things which came from this great city and from this this country, Greece, years ago. Paul arrived in Athens. He was waiting at that time for Silas and Timothy to show up. He had left them because he was forced to leave, and they were going to follow behind. And so Luke, at one point in Acts, chapter 17, as both a historian and a gospel writer, he writes Acts as a compliment, in a sense, to the gospel of Luke. He says in verse 16 of chapter 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. There's an ancient Greek proverb that declared there were more gods in Athens than people. Wherever you looked, there was niches and pedestals, and on those pedestals were statues and idols. On every street corner and in the actual courtyard of every home, there were altars, and on those altars were representations, replicas of God's. They were all throughout the city. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing one. And Paul, it says, was greatly distressed. Well, thankfully, when you think about it from our day and we look back at it, we're probably not bothered by this because we don't see that in our culture today. Idolatry, in a sense, seems really rather primitive. It's really, in a sense, irrelevant to our life. You probably don't see anyone on a regular basis kneeling before a golden statue or some kind of wooden stone, right? There, it's probably as out of date as leisure suits and bell bottoms but paul was bothered because i think he saw something more than that he was aware that your idea of god forms your idea of life it wasn't just a stone statue or a gold image that bothered him he was bothered he was distressed because those things really just represented the fact that, that they were that, the things that were placed on the hearts of people. Whatever you think it is, in a sense, that gives you life. Wherever you think that you're going to get security, where you think that you will find peace, where you think in some way that you have something that will create power, whether it's your money, retirement accounts that give you a sense of security, Whether it's a relationship in your marriage or with your children, your family, your job, whatever it is, those, in a sense, are modern-day idols. Whatever sits on the throne of your heart, Paul was bothered by this because he knew that these idols of image and stone were really just representations of what had the hearts of people. Everything about you, everything you do, every relationship you have, every hope, every dream, every wish that you have depends on what wins the war of your heart. And so Paul saw much more than wooden stone. What really distressed him was that he saw not just a, a city full of idols, but a people whose hearts were enslaved to that which would never give them all that they really had hoped for. That's really not much different than today. So while waiting, Paul began to reason with the people of Athens, and he went to the synagogue, and he'd go to the marketplace, and he would, he'd go toe-to-toe with some of the brightest thinkers of their day. We're told in verse 18 of chapter 17 that that there were a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who began to dispute him. And the reason those two are brought up is because they were the two main thoughts of life in Greece at that time. Those were the Athenian philosophies. And Epicureans is something that we know. The motto was basically this. If it feels good, do it. They were materialists. They sought after pleasure. The goal was to enjoy life, avoid pain, buy as many things and as experiences as you can in this life. Remind you of anything? We have commercials all the time. And, and, and we see it all the time. Buy this experience, get this thing. Whatever you do, try and avoid pain. And it's captured hearts. It may have captured yours. There's another model, the Stoics model, which is Grin and Barrett. And their thought was that life is filled with both good and bad. You just enjoy the good because you know you will experience bad. All of life is about going through it, being strong so that you can endure it. You just have to get through it. It reminds me of Minnesota, Norwegians, and Germans. We just get through the winter. I have friends who come up here from the south, and, they, and I drive them during the winter, and they see lakes that are frozen, and they see people sitting on lakes with little things in their hands. And they just don't get the Stoic philosophy. If I could just get that fish. Intrigued by Paul's thoughts, these Epicureans and Stoics said, you know, we really need to let Paul, we need to invite him to the Areopagus, which is the, which is the area where they would, would stand around and a person would present the ideas that they had. So Acts chapter 17, verse 20 says, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, these Epicureans and Stoics say. We want to know what they mean. And then in parenthesis, listen to what Luke writes. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Remember I said this is where democracy arose. This is the infancy of Congress. Um, I'm Just, just kidding. This really happened there. It was a very wealthy city. They had actually um, received a lot of taxes from, from their foreign domination. And as a result of that, they, they were in a position, many of them, to live life and not have to really do anything. And and so in the city, we're told even in, throughout Greece, there was one slave for every three people. And, and you have this culture where they would, this, especially men, because women in a Greek culture couldn't really leave the home unless they were escorted by somebody. And so you would see the men, the men would go out in the morning, they would have breakfast, and then from breakfast they would go to a gymnasium where they would be both physically and in, in many ways, intellectually, there's some places to be taught, stimulated there. And then from there they would go to the Areopagus or to the Marketplace. And in the Marketplace, it wasn't just an exchange of goods and services, it was also the place where you exchanged ideas. And this was their life, guys. And then when they'd get done with that, they'd go home. For a little bit, and then they'd go to someone's house. There'd be a group in a symposium. Symposiums were a place where you'd just drink and you would party. And so Paul is invited to speak. And so as you look at chapter 17, verses 22 through 31, this is the beginning of his message, his introduction. He says, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see you are very religious in every way. As I walked around, I looked carefully at the things you worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And it was written on that. And now I'm going to tell you about the unknown God that you worship. Which was a very clever way for Paul to bring this up. Because there was a a law against both proclaiming and promoting foreign gods. You couldn't bring in a foreign god. So Paul, with great wisdom, goes, you know what? I'm going to tell you about this God, this one God who revealed himself through Jesus Christ through this God you proclaim to be unknown. So let me make it known to you. See how he kind of moved around that whole law? And Paul uses the inscription to make this unknown God to people, to you, to me, known. And Paul basically, as you begin to go through his messages, makes this point that God isn't really unknown. It's no fault of his own. This God has been seeking to make himself known. He wants you to see Him, all people to know Him. So he begins the message by pointing to the greatness of God. He wants them to understand. Basically, it's what theologians call general revelation. In a very general way, all people can know this God because God reveals Himself through His creation. And so Paul goes on. He says in verse 24-28, through here's his message. He is the God who made the world which really flies in the face of all their gods because their gods were all involved in this. He has also made everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He himself gives life and breath to all people. He also gives them everything else they have. And from one man, he made all the people of the world. Now they live all over the earth. He decided exactly when they should live. And he decided exactly where they should live. God did this so that the people would seek him. And then perhaps they would reach out for him and then find him. And they would find him even though he is not far from any of us. In him we live and move and exist. That's in quotes because that's one of the quotes from his poets. And as some of your own poets have also said, we are his children, his offspring. Simply, he's saying the unknown God that is in this statue that I'm making known is the creator and sustainer of all life. He is the God who made the world. He is the one himself that gives life and breath to all people. Every time you breathe, you are testifying to the fact of this God, everything that you see, everything that you hear in nature points to it. I was listening to a TED talk while I was working out and uh, as I was listening to it, it by a, a physicist and economist named James B. Glatfelder. And the talk was called Who Controls the World? And I thought that would be an interesting talk, so I'm listening to it. He's talking about complexity and the interconnectedness of the systems and, and how the sum is greater than the parts when you bring it all together and how complexity theory can reveal a lot about how our economy works. You're thrilled so far? Well, after he's making some comments, at one point he says, we spend billions of dollars trying to understand the origins and workings of the universe, but hardly anything on the workings of economies, which I disagree with. But anyway, he goes on to describe physics. Physics is taking a chunk of reality that you want to understand. And what you do is you take this chunk of reality and you you relate it to mathematical equations so that you can understand reality through these mathematical equations. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thought because I took physics a long time ago. And then offhandedly he makes this comment. He says, we're really lucky that this works because no one really knows why the thoughts in our heads should relate to the fundamental workings of the universe. And at that point, the camera pans out over the whole audience. Some of the brightest people in the world at these TED Talks and they're all going, like, this is the most profound thing that's been said. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, truly, if I, if I took this and I said, you know what, no one made this, you'd look at me and go, really? I mean, is it really possible that we just are kind of lucky that we're matching our thoughts with reality? What Paul is simply saying is there's a creator and a sustainer of life and all people can know this and it requires in some ways more faith to believe that this isn't the case. G. W. G. W.G. Pollock tells a story about Sir Isaac Newton, which I thought was kind of an interesting story. You could show this from many different angles. But at one point, Newton had made this miniature replica of the solar system, and it took some engineering skill, and he didn't himself do it. He gave it to someone to do. And it was really intricate. And in the center was the sun and the planets revolving around it. And one of his scientific friends entered his study one day, and he saw that, and he exclaimed, he said, my, what an exquisite thing this is. Who made it? And Newton said, nobody. Because he knew that his friend was an atheist. What do you think, I'm a fool, says his friend? Tell me who made this. This is a work of a genius. And then uh, Newton put his book down, stood up, put his hand on his friend's shoulder, and he says, friend, this thing is but a puny imitation of the much grander system whose laws you and I know, and I'm not able to convince you that a mere toy in comparison is without a designer and a maker. How, my friend, could you believe the great original from which this little design is taken has come into being without a designer or a maker? And then he capped it off by saying, Please help me understand what sort of reasoning do you reach such incongruous conclusions? Because, as Paul said, this unknown God is known all around us by just looking at the creation from a general standpoint. You don't need a special revelation to know this. And he goes on to point out not only that this God is great and he is a creator and sustainer of life, but he begins to talk about his goodness. Verse 24 and 25, he says he doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He himself gives life and breath to all people, which really ran in the face of all the Greek gods because the Greek gods were very, very needy people and they were very, very, very malicious kind of gods. He says he gives himself life and breath to all people. He also gives them everything else they have he provides. The fact that the most lavish buildings in the Greek culture were religious sanctuary testifies to how religious they were. Thousands of gods and people. In fact, one of the um, historians had said that there was an inscription that that said the only time a, a Greek is happy is when he's dead. And the reason for that, even though they were seeking to avoid pain or they were seeking to be happier, or they are seeking to endure it, is because they were so afraid of their gods. And these gods were interesting because, as he says here, they didn't live in temples built by human hands. You see, they would build these, these Parthenons, these massive sanctuaries in different places in all their different cities, because in those places, gods actually lived. You didn't go there like this to go worship God, you didn't sit in the you know, kind of and sing songs to this God. This was where the God actually lived. They built these buildings for them. And not only that, they would, on certain times of year, they would bring all kinds of food and all kinds of other things to make sure they could please this God. But if you were kind of giving too much to one God and you were experiencing too much good, you were afraid that if you had too much good in your life, you had to make sure the opposing God wouldn't become jealous and you would have to give enough food over there. It was, this, it was a life where you were constantly afraid of this God or God's. And so he says, he gives you breath. He provides for you. And I'm sure at this point their mouths are kind of open because this kind of God who both creates and sustains life flies in the face of the multiplicity of their gods and beyond this, this idea that this God is good, who actually loves and cares and is concerned and is compassionate towards them is nothing they've heard of before. Robert Garland, who of Colgate University, he he holds the Wooster chair of classics, writes this, the Greek gods were jealous, vengeful, unpredictable selfish and immoral they were constantly at war with one another their interests frequently collided and they were only marginally concerned with the welfare of mankind and given all the squabbling that these that characterized these gods lives it's not surprising that the greeks he says never came up with an idea of a god whose love of humanity was unqualified the greeks worshiped their gods not out of love and thankfulness but out of complete fear and Paul is saying, "This God is great. This God is not unknown to you. You can see this God throughout your, your, your just with your eyes open and your ears open and your life lived, and you can know this God. This God is good. The very stuff you eat, the things, the fact that this, the, the soil produces this food, is the fact that this God is providing for you." And then he goes on, and he he begins to, um, to to basically call them to. Ask them, in a sense, do you have this kind of God in your life? Do you know this God? Is this the kind of God you live with? I've noticed in my own life and in the life of other people that we know a lot about God and we we talk about how loving and kind and gracious He is, but I think a lot of times we're still ruled in our hearts by a lot of fear. And I've noticed this over a number of years. And as a result of this, over the last number of years, I've been praying and saying, God, you know, one of the things that you've been teaching me, one of the things I see very clearly in your word is that you speak to people to their heart and you love them so much that you want them to walk always like Jesus did out of the deep sense of being loved by you, knowing that you're good. And that 'll provide, and as a result of that, um, just a couple of years ago with some people and uh, we, we began a ministry called Gateway Prayer Ministry, and, and the elders of the church have had, um, blessed it, and, and we 've established this, and over this past year, about eighty people have gone through it. and The reason this was established is because I noticed so often that people had truth in their head, but it wasn 't in their heart. And how do you begin to move that from the head into the heart? And one of the ways you do that is through prayer. And one of the ways you do that is is to help people hear God speak to their own heart. It's one thing for me to tell you something, but it's another thing for you to hear God say that same thing in your heart. And one of the desires was to begin to help replace the lies that people have in their head with the truth from the head down into the heart. And what surprised me is we've had about 80 people go through, and over this last year, five of them who have gone through I was expecting this just to help believers move into a place where they experience the goodness of God and walk in the truth of God and begin to hear the voice of God. Five of the people that have gone through it for the first time made a commitment and opened their heart to Jesus Christ. Here's some of the things that people have said. I'm very grateful to be healed of some of the things in my life I wasn't able to pinpoint. I needed help to see the truth. I feel a sense of release and relief from the weight of the burdens I've carried this year. Sort of a peace and healing in place of anxiety and pain. I have never listened to this person. I have never felt as at peace as I do now. I even sleep better at night. I can't remember when I slept more soundly and all the way through the night because they came into an experience of a true knowing of Jesus in their life. Another person says some deep forgiveness issues were exposed and relieved. I'm hopeful and thankful. I've been encouraged. Issues were replaced with growth and healthy truths and realities. Moving from fear to faith, it broke some strongholds in my life. It's so freeing. Another says I felt the weight being taken off me. I felt like I could see again. I felt like feeling light and joyful. It was amazing. I never knew I could see God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit the way I did today. I feel like I can have kind of conversation with God and I feel like I know how to listen. Do you know God? I mean, do you live with the sense of His presence and the fact of His love where you begin to live out this truth of who He is and the truth of what it means to relate to the reality as He's made it, so as you walk through it, you experience His goodness and His freedom. I, had one other, I could read you a list. I, another person wrote this. I learned to see that God was there throughout my life, whether I knew it or not. He was there and he brought me through it all. I have also been able to feel God's arms around me much more. I have learned to rely on God more because more, I'm more at peace with my past. I'm not exactly where I want to be yet, but I definitely am not where I was. And then went on to share their understanding of Jesus and, and some of the intimacy they have begun to experience. And they said, Sometimes I slip and listen to those lies, but I'm finding it easier to stop listening and turn to God for the truth. And Paul is just saying, You know what, this God, not only is he great, but he's good. And then he makes one last point. He says he's also a God who guides. If you look at verse 26 through verse 28, He says, from one man he made all the people of the world. Now they live all over the earth. He decided exactly when they should live and he decided exactly where they should live. I think that's an interesting statement. This God personally has been involved behind the scenes of your life to not just a kind of general way, but very intimately engaged. He decided exactly when we should live and he decided exactly where we should live, it says. God determines in a sense that you Greeks should be Greeks and you Athenians should be Athenians. You Americans should be Americans, you Wyzetans should be Wyzetans, you Plymouthans should be Plymouthians. And sadly, yes, even some people Yes, some people grow up in North Dakota. I'll get all the North Dakota's responses after this. Anyway, the point is that God intimately guides their life. And even though he may not be known by you, he's been involved in your life. We're going to get to heaven someday. Some, If you've accepted and received Christ and you stand before him and personally know him, you're going to look back and go, I cannot believe all the places you've been engaged in my life. I didn't even know it. And Paul says in this great sermon of his, all of this, all that is for a purpose, and that is that we might know God intimately. So that in verse 27 of chapter 17, he says, God did this so that people would seek him. And then perhaps they would reach out for him and then find him. And they would find him even though he is not far from any of us. Like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is present. The rule of God is there. It is merely the opening of a heart that cries out to him and willfully says, I want to know you. I I recognize my sin and I recognize my need of you. I repent of that and I turn to you. And he says, God is just right. He's a a breath away. He's a whisper from you right now. It's interesting. The word is powerful. He reach out. It's a very strong word to grope in the dark, to try and and touch him. It's like Jesus said, if you seek, you'll find. God quenches the thirst of the thirsty. He, He fills the hunger of the hungry. He is a God who is right next to you that when you cry out, he hears. And so he quotes these two great poets. He says, "In Him we live, move, and exist." And and you may not even know it, but I want you to know it now. And he says, "In fact, if you really look at it, you're His offspring." I uh, about 15 years ago, I met with a man, a very um, bright and intelligent man, and he um, had come from South Africa. He'd actually served in the South African Army, and he was what we would call maybe a ranger. And his job was back in that time when communism was beginning to spread through pockets all around the world, through Latin America, South America, these communistic pockets in Southeast Asia and also in parts in Africa. One of those places was Angola. And South Africa was kind of watching to care for, to make sure that that didn't turn into a communist Complete time, his country spilled into other places. And so he, as a ranger, would go into the Angolan um, jungles in order to um, see what was going on and to, and to bring intelligence. And he would be dropped in with about three or four other, four other guys. And before they would go, they'd be put in, I guess, what's called like a hot house. In this hot house, they'd be there for a week. And the basic idea was that you would not wash or do anything because what you wanted to do was get rid of every unnatural smell so that your natural smell was what you were left with because that's in the jungle what needed to be out there so that you wouldn't be detected. And so they would fly them in and they would drop them into this area and they would go at night in the dark of night. They would make their way around. They would do whatever reconnaissance and kind of work they had to do. And then during the day they would find a place and they would sleep during the day and they would find the place that the Angolan troops wouldn't necessarily go through, the scouting troops, because they'd be looking for those kind of individuals. And he and I'm sharing with him about Jesus and his love for him and the fact that the Father who has created all this wants to know him and, and I've been meeting with him for weeks and weeks and at one point I finally said to him, I said, You know, this God has been involved in your life, probably you didn't even know it in the past and he looked at me, he got kind of tearful. He said What did she say? And I said, you know, this God has been involved in your life and you may not have even known it. And he said, you know, let me tell you some experiences I had specifically. I'll give you one. He said, I remember one time being dropped in and we're finding the place. It's time that we're tired and we're going to find a place to sleep. We found the perfect spot. We're all about ready. Everything's just about prepared for us to sleep. And I hear this voice that says, move, not here. And I... Listened to it. And we moved. We went to another place. My other three or four companions weren't real thrilled about this. But we slept. We got up the next day. We went back and circled through that area. And that day when we were sleeping, that Angolan troops had gone right through there. And he said, that happened to me two or three different times. And he said, do you mean to tell me this God was, was actually guiding my life I didn't even like him. I didn't have anything to do with him. You mean this God who I didn't like, who I wasn't good to, was good to me? I said, yeah. That's just the way our God is. He guides us. He's touched your life. You may be here searching and seeking and saying, who is this God? This God is the God that Paul talks about here. It's not just a God who calls you to reach out to Him through general revelation, but through a special revelation through His Son, Jesus Christ. It says that God Himself came and He seeked and He lived on this earth and He served us. So different than the God that the Greeks had. He was a God who actually sacrificed for us. He so loved us that He saved us at a cross. And He says He wants to know you. He wants to live with you. He wants you to experience all him. This is the God who wants to be with you. And I'm just going to conclude this verse twenty nine through thirty one, because they had different responses. Some sneered, some said let's think about it later. And some actually believed. But in verse twenty nine, this is kind of the key thing. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, since we're his children, We should not think that the divine being is like a gold or a silver or a stone, an image made by human design and skill not made by us, not some kind of money or relationship we're trying to seek, something to give us. He says, in the past, God would overlook such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Isn't it interesting this? God says, I command you. This is not just a suggestion. It's not a hope. It's not a wish. I command you because of what you've heard right now, you're responsible. There is a God who you can not only see in general revelation that is great and who is good and who guides, but this God has himself personally made himself known to you. And today he says through Jesus Christ, he wants to live and be with you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to take away your sins. He wants you to walk in the fullness of life. I, um, this past week, as you mentioned, my daughter had her wedding. And one of the people we were hoping could come was, was of one of my nephews, her cousin, and He's at West Point, and he was hoping to get off, and it wasn't until a couple of days before they said, you can go, you can have. Uh, you can go and leave. And we're all excited about it. And all of a sudden, just about when he's given his leave, we find out that there's a command given that he has to actually have an inspection before he leaves. And the inspection might mean, if he can't pass it, that he can't go. They basically said, the day you're leaving, if you do... At 0400, the command is, we're going to inspect your place. Now, let me tell you, they don't say, you know, we'd like to come by. Is it okay if we come by around 0400? Uh, not, not any of them kind of go, you know, is, is 0400 a little too early for you, Caleb? When a command is given by the authority, the command is that you respond. And I, at a certain point here, Paul's looking at him. They've heard everything about him. He's made it clear. He says the resurrection, if you read this, is the proof that this Jesus is true. And now the command is this. He's overlooked in patience, your ignorance. But today he commands you and says, repent, respond. If you know this to be true, today is the day to open your heart to him. So for some of you, it might be the first time you can say, God, I just invite you into my life, into my heart. There are some of you I want to share this with you. And we'll come back to this just as we close. But there are some of you I want to share. God wants to know more of you than you've ever let him into your life. You've let him be at a certain point, but he wants control of every part of your life. What's so interesting is that when Paul was making this speech, he didn't talk about their gross immorality because they were very immoral people. The gods were immoral, so were they. He didn't talk about their arrogant intellectualism. They were very bright and, in fact, arrogantly bright. He didn't even even talk about their their lack of compassion for the poor and broken because they were very, very non-compassionate people. You know what he says? The command is to your will. Will you, with your will, say, I will you, God, to be my Savior and my Lord. I will to know you. So I want you to pray about that. And as we sing this, I'm going to ask the ushers to come for the care offering. For those who are in need in our community, we take this offering.